Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. So, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about Fritz Lang's Metropolis on this episode at long last, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those, you know, long time coming kind of things. Uh, I mean, because of the sort of remit that we've imposed on ourselves for the show, uh, sometimes we, we, I think we like to space out, perhaps unconsciously, the good films, and this is certainly one of them, um, you know, so that they can uh, be, you know, the diamonds in the rough among all of the, uh, you know, liberal and conservative kitsch that we otherwise consume for this show. So yes, this one has been a long time coming. So I was doing some sightseeing in Germany, and And uh, last week, I saw two museums that might be relevant as we gear up for this conversation. A few days ago, I went to the New National Gallery, which is an art museum that focuses on modern art from 1900 to 1950. Although, with a few noble exceptions, uh, I think it's fair to say that modern art pretty much ceased in Germany starting in 1933 for a generation. The stuff that was produced was produced pretty underground. As I said on the last Patreon episode, in my old age, I'm becoming the sort of person who gets deeply emotional at art galleries, and this was no exception. When you look at the German art from the 1920s, a lot of it suggests, uh, and you know, this will not be a revolutionary insight, a lot of it suggests a country that was both deeply traumatized by war, but also very unsentimental about the concept of war. Uh, So, you know, you'll see a lot of horrible battlefield scenes, a lot of pictures of death and disfigurement, often with a strong sense of gallows humor. Otto Dix's paintings are very powerful examples of this. I recommend people look up his painting of the Flanders battlefield. I'm very fond of Otto Dix, since I discovered him courtesy of that wonderful series, Shock of the New. Uh, This is also, though, a country where all the major art movements of the time flourished. Cubism, surrealism, expressionism, abstract art. Uh, You sense that the trauma of war helped birth this atmosphere of liberation and made possible all this great experimentation that took place. And there's also the extraordinary sense of great social and political unrest. A lot of the art tackles it directly. I encourage people to look up a painting called The Speaker Number One Auto Rule by Conrad Felix Mueller and another one called Pillars of Society by George Gross. Uh, But just a lot of the art conveys a great sense of ambient unease. And this is particularly true of Weimar-era cinema. So the other gallery that I saw was the German Film Museum, the Deutsche Kinematek. And this museum is strongest when it comes to the 1920s has a lot of objects related to F.W. Murnau, Fritz Lang, Ernst Lubitsch, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, a lot of stuff that Marlena Dietrich owned also. She must have kept her archives in very good order. And you've incidentally paid her a visit while in Germany as well. Yeah, I I saw her grave, which uh, I'm delighted to say just has Marlena on it. Doesn't have her last name because uh, I guess she she doesn't need it. We all know who Marlena is. Uh, Anyway, There are a lot of these rooms in this museum with this 1920s material. Then there are two rooms that cover the Nazi period. One focuses on Leni Riefenstahl's Olympia, and the other covers the rest. And most of the German films that were made under Nazi rule are not widely seen or talked about anymore, for a lot of obvious reasons, including the fact that most of them, I get the sense they're not very interesting. Like, if they're not propaganda films, they're fluffy musicals and comedies and uh, sort of stuff that didn't push the form like the 1920s stuff did. 
And seeing this room after all that 20s stuff, it, it's very sobering. A few rooms before you see the Oscar that Emil Jannings won in 1928. He was the first Best Actor Oscar winner. And then a few rooms later, you see him, you know, dressed up as a stereotypical Jewish man in Nazi propaganda films. And, you know, a ton of other luminaries of Weimar era cinema, of course, fled to Hollywood where they had... Uh, varying degrees of success. And that museum made me feel very emotional because you see, you know, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Metropolis, M, all the, all this extraordinary stuff. And then it, it stops. It's like the, the flower is just cut at the root. But when you watch those movies, and I'm, uh, that will definitely be the case with the one that we're talking about now, one of the things that makes them resonate down through the decades, I think, is that sense of unease that they all have. They They are products of this haunted society, this this society of great unrest. You can particularly see it in uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. You can see it in M, which is this very chilling depiction of society falling apart at the seams with the intrusion of this child killer character. Uh, you can see it in Nosferatu with, with the plague-like imagery that's in that film. And uh, Metropolis, definitely a product of that time. So, of course, when I was at the German Film Museum, you know, I felt very sad uh, and it felt like such a waste that all of this greatness was just abruptly ended. But so much of that greatness feels in retrospect to be haunted with the seeds of what's to come. What can you say about it? I mean, it, that's what the work is. Yeah, I should say here um, that this episode, I think, is very much a sort of spiritual successor to one we did in 2020. It was episode 149. It was called From Caligari to Hitler. That includes a monologue I put together setting up our discussion of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari which of course looms very large uh, really in any discussion of Weimar cinema in a big way from uh, the book whose title we borrowed for that episode uh, From Caligari to Hitler by the film critic Siegfried Krakauer. That is a book that is very influential and I think by virtue of being influential is fairly controversial as well. We'll probably be repeating ourselves from episode 149 a little bit in this episode because I think it's very difficult to discuss uh, Metropolis or any other German film from this period without talking about Siegfried Krakauer, who really is the, I guess, principal chronicler and inventor in some ways of this thesis on Weimar cinema, uh, which Will has alluded to in this kind of haunted quality. Now, I, I want to get back to Krakauer in a second, but by way of setting up the cinema of Weimar Germany in somewhat more general terms, I want to read a bit from Eric D. Weitz's uh, history, uh, Weimar Germany, Promise and Tragedy, which is a history of Weimar Germany that uh, I've referenced before on the show. There's a whole chapter called Sound and Image about the music and cinema of Weimar Germany. And I just want to read a little bit from the conclusion of that chapter. Now, perhaps this is so obvious, I don't need to say it, but the cinema of this period, and I mean, this film in particular, uh, Metropolis, which came out in 1927, its context is very much a modernist one, I think in two important senses. One, in the obvious sense that cinema is very much a new medium, and particularly as a mass medium. Metropolis has got to be, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but it's got to be sort of one of the first, you know, blockbuster pictures. I mean, it's got to be one of the first examples of a film on this scale or with this budget. Is that right? Well, very few movies had been made at this scale. I mean, there was Kiberia in Italy in 1914. and Birth of a Nation, I suppose. Birth of a Nation 
Inception, yeah. A number of other films that could be called blockbusters, although certainly not a lot of movies that looked like this. So I think that's the first uh, important piece of context I want to set up uh, before reading the passage. Uh, the second is that, you know, the cinema of this period, in addition to being, you know, a kind of modernist mass art form, I mean, it's also reacting to and reflecting a type of mass society that hasn't really existed before. So it's a modernist medium for a modernist era. And that's something I think this passage uh, chronicles very well. You know, Weitz really writes about Weimar Germany as a sort of crucible of modernity. And that's how he writes about its cinema too. The moving picture evinced a new kind of nervous energy, but that was only part of the story. The reproducible sound and image also made possible new kinds of art and new forms of beauty. And they stimulated some of Weimar Germany's great creative figures to to think about the meaning of the new media in which they worked and more generally of life in modern times. Some of the great filmmakers of the Weimar era explored the ironies and complexities of the city, the very centerpiece and symbol of modernity. For Robert Syodmak, Edgar Ulmer, Werner Ruttmann, Billy Wilder, Fritz Lang and many others, Berlin's powerful machines, churning trains and racing population had their own kind of beauty which they captured on film. The city could be a place of pleasure and satisfaction and also a site of mystery, danger and alienation. The advocates of radio and records loved the experience of hearing music and plays performed in faraway places, even as they worried about the degeneration of sound and the loss of image quality that accompanied the transmission and reproduction. Weimar modernity was complex, contradictory, and contested. Its greatest cultural figures understood that and used the media in which they worked, photography, film, radio, and recordings, to reflect upon the meaning of modernity. They were hardly alone. All across the developed world and beyond, the post-World War I era showered people with new sounds and images. Britons, too, flocked to the radio and the cinema. Argentines danced to recorded as well as live music. And wherever there was a movie projector and something resembling a screen, audiences laughed at Charlie Chaplin. The electrified and reproducible sound and image internationalized culture in the 1920s as never before and inspired and worried people all across the social spectrum. But as with economics and politics, so with culture. There was something particularly vital and intense about Germans' engagement with these new media forms in the 1920s and early 1930s. Cinema, radio, illustrated magazines and records offered Germans entertainment and relief galore from the troubles and tribulations of defeat and war and the burdensome legacies of reparations and inflation. The revolution inspired experimentation with everything new, from sound transmission to moving images. Many artists, writers, directors, and composers jumped at the chance to work in the new media precisely because they signified a break with the past and provided one more way to express rejection of pre-1918 Imperial Germany with its Kaisers, Generals, Nobles, and stuffy, rigid, and outmoded art academies. However, the revolution's incomplete character, the failure of its proponents to destroy the bastions of power occupied by the elites, also ensured that there were voices aplenty to challenge the supposedly degenerate and dissolute influences of the new media forms like cinema and radio. No less than the constitution and social welfare policies, mass culture became a focal point of loud, incessant conflict. The saddest irony is that almost all of the great artists who developed the new media forms of the 1920s and the great thinkers who pondered their significance for modern times would have to leave Germany, and the Nazis would become the master manipulators of the microphone, radio, and cinema. Now we're going to come back later in the episode to what the critic Siegfried Krakauer said about Fritz Lang's Metropolis. 
Krakauer's thesis, I suppose, uh, to sum it up in brief, is that there are certain latent tendencies towards uh, authoritarianism in the German collective unconscious that reveal themselves through the cinema of Weimar Germany, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari being a major example of this. But, you know, in the book, he traces this history, uh, you know, across the cinema of Weimar. And he talks about the subtext uh, that emerges from uh, the cinema of this period uh, as one which, quote, stands for an unlimited authority that idolizes power as such and to satisfy its lust for domination ruthlessly violates all human rights and values. So it's a very provocative thesis and it's one that, as I said, is you know, somewhat controversial. I remember being introduced to it uh, in film studies uh, with a you know famous essay, I don't remember by whom, uh, which was seeking to rebut it um, and which basically accused Krakauer of a sort of post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, right? After this, therefore, because of this. So the crux of that was that, you know, well, you can look back in retrospect at 20 years of German film and because you know where history ended up, you have the benefit of hindsight. You can then establish a compelling thesis by which elements of a national culture appear to explain uh, some kind of historical trajectory. I mean, the one suspicion I have with Krakauer's thesis is that uh, surely German cinema in the 20s was more than just, you know, the 10 or 20 greatest hits. I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, just flotsam and detritus that was also made in the 1920s that doesn't necessarily fit into the thesis. But then again, I mean, it could be Germany in the 20s, it could be America in the 1960s, it could be any era that is deemed historically significant. I mean, there are texts that resonate both then and now that through that resonance do seem to illustrate tendencies that led to the narratives that we've created for ourselves, you know. So Krakauer's approach seems reasonable to me. Like, just because the 1960s was the decade of Gary Lewis and the Playboys doesn't mean it wasn't also the decade of Bob Dylan, right? Yeah, that's certainly true. And it is the case that uh, some of the criticism of From Caligari to Hitler has basically made the argument that, you know, Krakauer only deals with particular films and doesn't, you know, deal with enough films to substantiate his thesis. Now, you made the point about, you know, what about all the detritus? So what about the films from Weimar Germany that are not great art, but are just sort of, you know, standard mass culture, you know, created through kind of Fordist production methods, etc. And I'm just imagining a version of this podcast from the 1920s, you know, two guys on the radio called like, I don't know, Ville and Luke with their show, uh, I don't know, uh, Ebert and Us. And, you know, they sit down with like all the films that are just the flotsam and jetsam of Weimar culture. And they're like, oh, no, actually, like, if you really watch this film, uh, this is pure like Mussoliniism or something. But just to return to Krakauer's thesis before we get to the movie, I mean, I'm convinced at this point that there really is something to it. I mean, all this stuff about a collective unconscious, you know, when you sort of describe the book's thesis, it can kind of sound a little bit vague, you know, like he's talking about about something that's, I don't know, sort of spiritual and ambient and can't really be pinned down. Um, And it's important to uh, note that if you read the introduction of the book, I mean, he qualifies the thesis in a number of important ways, uh, and he also substantiates it in a number of other ways. So, I mean, the the strongest point uh, in in his favor and in favor of his kind of method throughout the book is that, you know, he talks about film specifically because cinema is a mass medium. And so it's therefore responsive to popular desires in a way that other mediums aren't necessarily. You know, I don't think the same thing could be said about many of the German art movements of the early 1920s, for example, or it'd be harder to make the case anyway. Something else he says, and I think this is an important qualifier, I just want to read a little bit from the introduction. He says, 
to speak of a peculiar mentality of a nation by no means implies the concept of a fixed national character. The interest here lies exclusively in such collective dispositions or tendencies as prevail within a nation at a certain stage of its development. What fears and hopes swept Germany immediately after World War I? Questions of this kind are legitimate because of their limited range. Incidentally, they are the only ones which can be answered by an appropriate analysis of the films of the time. In other words, this book is not concerned with establishing some national character pattern allegedly elevated above history, but it is concerned with the psychological pattern of a people at a particular time. There's no lack of studies covering the political, social, economic, and cultural history of the great nations. I propose to add to these well-known types that of a psychological history. And jumping to the end of the uh, introduction, he concludes by saying, thus behind the overt history of economic shift, social exigencies and political machinations runs a secret history involving the inner dispositions of the German people. The disclosure of these dispositions through the medium of the German screen may help in the understanding of Hitler's ascent and ascendancy. Now we're going to talk about Krakauer uh, some more in this episode. When we get to the conclusion of uh, Metropolis, which in an odd way, despite being from 1927, feels like the kind of great political climb down that we often you know, express disappointment with uh, on this podcast. But I think that's enough setup. So let's uh, let's talk about Metropolis, probably one of the greatest uh, films ever made and arguably, I think, the greatest silent film ever made, at least. Uh, it's not even one of my favorite Fritz Lang movies, to be honest, uh, but, but it is good. Metropolis is set in a distant future, probably as far away as 1980, maybe even the year 2000. (laughs) The story unfolds in a vast and prosperous city where the architecture stretches far into the sky. And it's worth pausing on this because the production design by Eric Kettlehut and the cinematography by Eugene Schuften are justly iconic. Uh, The city setting, of course, it's, it's cliche to say how influential it was on movies like Blade Runner, Tim Burton's Batman, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, etc., etc., or how it synthesizes so many of the artistic and architectural styles of the time. You got your Art Deco, your Bauhaus, your Futurism, your Expressionism, your Gothic. But uh, it bears stating, nevertheless. Uh, you can't talk about Metropolis without stating that. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that the, the surface shots in Metropolis, so the shots of the city, are among the most incredible and memorable in the history of cinema. I mean, there is a kind of realism to them and a grandness to them, which is just remarkable remarkable considering the technology of the time. I want to say something else about the city in a second, but I do just want to register here uh, something that I don't think I've really ever quite picked up on, but I think I'm only noticing now, which is that uh, Will Sloan, my uh, beloved co-host and I, have been great friends for many years. And, uh, you know, if you've listened to the show for any time, you've probably noticed that we agree on, well, most things. And I think that it may be the case that our our biggest point of uh, disagreement when it comes to taste in film has to 
do with German cinema in the 1920s and 30s. This has happened a number of times. Uh, we have disagreed on the artistic merits of various films. In one of the only times where either of us ever bailed on a film that the other one was introducing us to, I, after much agitation, got Will to sit down to uh, watch Fritz Lang's film, uh, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, which I just like set up as like, you have to see this film. It's one of the greatest films ever made. And Will was extremely tired uh, that night and had... Yeah, uh, yeah. Frankly, okay, frankly, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt you. <laughs> Testament of Dr. Mabuza, which I have since watched from beginning to end and think is a great film. Uh, that night, we had hung out for a long time before we put the movie on. I was four drinks in, okay? Four <laughs> drinks in, which is my limit. And at that point, I was simply unable to follow the subtitles. Uh, so I had to bail. When I say that Metropolis isn't one of my f- favorite Fritz Lang movies, can I just say that that just means I don't think it's one of the very best movies ever made. But, I mean, this begs the obvious follow-up, Well, which is what is your favorite Fritz Lang movie? Well, my favorite is probably M. I also love The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. I'm a huge fan of uh, his American film, The Big Heat, which I think is one of the great film noirs of all time. Fury is a wonderful movie. I, I would just say I like Metropolis a lot, but as we'll see, there is a streak to it, uh, a streak to its thought that I find a little objectionable. Well, when it comes to the uh, the night we tried to watch Testament of Dr. Mabuza, I think I will accuse Will of just a minor uh, historical revisionism there, but we can move on from that. But since he qualified his statement about Metropolis and uh, and gave us some more thoughts on uh, you know his opinions of Fritz Lang, I'll qualify what I said as well. I mean, I think Metropolis is one of the great silent movies and one of the great films of all time. You know, I wasn't saying that as a political judgment necessarily. I'm speaking about it, I think, purely on the level of what it's like as a viewing experience and as a spectacle. I mean, I really think in that sense, it's kind of in another league than a lot of other cinema. Now, having said that, I do agree with the spirit of what you just said, um, not only in the sense of having some, I don't know, political questions about the, uh, you know, apparent uh, thesis of the film, uh, but also just about the fact that it is in many ways sort of a contradictory jumble of different things. I mean, uh, the film critic Arthur Lenning wrote of it that to enjoy the film, the viewer must observe but never think. Pauline Kael you know, kind of characteristically less diplomatic, contrasted its, quote, moments of most incredible beauty and power with its absurd ineptitudes. And I'll note that Roger Ebert in his write-up in The Great Movies notes that there are, you know, some some gaps and logical puzzles uh, in the story as well. Although these are partly owed, I think, to the censorship and the kind of various cuts of the film, which I think are as much a part of its legacy as anything that it might have on its mind. Because, you know, it was famously cut down because of Nazi censorship to something like a 115 minute version. Uh, I think various sort of bootlegs of it emerged over the years. It came out in 2010 courtesy of a long reel, I think in Buenos Aires, in a sort of complete version, which is uh, the one I watched for this episode. I think it was the first time I'd ever seen this two and a half hour version. But so this film has many lives and its legend, I think, is very much owed to that as well. But returning to the titular metropolis, it is a beautiful, advanced prosperous city, but deep underneath is a parallel city, a vast underground factory where an underclass of workers toil in barbaric conditions to power the city. The city is overseen by Frederson, who is like a combination of a factory owner and a politician. He's the ruler, and he cuts a bit of a Henry Fordish physique. The film's protagonist is his son, Freder, 
a young man who has grown up in the lap of luxury and, like so much of the above-ground society, has been kept in the dark about how Metropolis is really powered. One day, while spending an afternoon in the Pleasure Garden, uh, which is one of my favorite locations in the movie, uh, he encounters a woman named Maria, who is shepherding a group of the workers' children to see how rich people live. Maria works in the underworld as a sort of social worker slash religious guru for the workers. Uh, she cares for them, she tells them stories, most importantly she tells of a prophecy that one day a mediator will come who will broker peace between the workers and the rulers. Freighter falls in love at first sight with Maria and in searching for her, finds his way down to this underworld. He's shocked by what he sees. He feels instant solidarity with his lower-class brothers. He even switches places with one of them, manning a piece of heavy machinery for a grueling ten-hour shift, while the worker travels up to live a life of hedonism in Metropolis. He can't give the people their freedom too fast, you know what I mean? Freighter does this partly as a rebellion against his father, the ruler, who he is shocked to learn is unmoved by the plight of his workers. Freighter believes that he can be the mediator that Maria prophesizes. Freighterson doesn't like that at all, and so orders the sinister inventor Rotwang to mold his new robot creation into Maria's likeness. And with this false Maria, they can discredit the real Maria's work and put an end to the prophecy of the mediator. So Rotwang kidnaps Maria. He creates this robot in her likeness, but things do not go according to plan. The new bad Maria ends up being much more of a revolutionary than the good Maria, who I have to say was really keeping the peasants in line. I think Frederson didn't realize what what a good deal he had with the real Maria. Well, Rotwang has a, has a vendetta against Frederson related to a romance with a woman named Hell, H-E-L, who uh, left Rotwang to marry Frederson and became a freighter's mother, but died giving birth to him. So Rotwang, who's this kind of mad inventor character who, I don't know, physically, I think, resembles Dr. Mabuza quite a lot. He sort of has an agenda of his own. So Bad Maria foments a revolution. Freighter makes an inept attempt to unmask the Bad Maria to the workers, but the workers, I think, quite rightly regard him with suspicion, since he is, after all, the son of the ruler who built this system. And the last act depicts the disastrous worker uprising. In their fervor to destroy the machines and infiltrate Metropolis, they accidentally cause a great flood in the lower depths and leave all their children behind. The real Maria rescues the children, the false Maria is burnt at the stake, Freighter defeats Rotwang in a fist fight on the roof of the cathedral, uh, and then, in the final scene, a mediator emerges, and it is, you guessed it, Freder. He brings together his father with the leader of the workers for a handshake that promises brighter days ahead, and the final on-screen text declares, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. See, Freder is the heart. Uh, I, I was reminded a bit of that memorable speech in Team America about uh, the dicks, the pussies, and the assholes. <laughs> Everything about this last uh, scene of the movie reminded me of, uh, Luke, have you ever seen a little movie called uh, The Batman? 
uh, because <laughs> uh, I think in that film, Batman, Batman's kind of like uh, the mediator between uh, the head and the, and the hand too, isn't he? You know, he he may be Thomas Wayne's son, but he's the man <laughs> to unite this broken society. Well, I mean, this is really the the most interesting thing about Metropolis is that there is, in my view, a pretty significant contradiction between the epigram, which appears at the beginning, this thing about you know the mediator between brain and hand must be the heart, and then you know that's the conclusion to the film as well. I mean, that's a very uh, conservative conclusion, right? It's basically Bidenism. It's like, well, we're going to have a class society, but we just like need everybody to get along. The problems are not, you know, social or political. They're spiritual. And, you know, we just need like a sort of pastoral figure in the center to mediate between conflicting interests or whatever. And to be clear, it's not like there was some misunderstanding going on here. I mean, the ruler of Metropolis designed this system. He oversaw this system. That's right. And it and it and it is, I think, an important detail as well that the people who get to live this kind of idyllic bourgeois life on the surface. I mean, it does seem like a lot of them don't really know how the city works, like they're not aware that there's this kind of subterranean underclass that lives in these absolutely uh, brutal conditions and in which the sort of Promethean utopia of life on the surface, you know, rests on all of this. Uh, they're not they're not aware of it. The thing is, though, the film really does depict life beneath the city as horrible and exploitative. And I mean, some of the images are just you know, so incredibly powerful. I mean, one that uh, stands out for me in particular, which I'd forgotten about, is right in the first scene where you see a, a shift change going on, where sort of workers are in this very, you know, mechanistic way are leaving their machines uh, in a procession, and then a new contingent is coming on for its shift. And you see a clock face, uh, but the clock only has 10 hours on it. Essentially, the day has been shortened so they can cram more work days into the week. One of the most famous images from the movie is the scene uh, where Freighter, uh, this is early early in the film, goes down to the underground city, the workers' city, uh, and sees the workers uh, working at their machines. The way this is filmed, which is, you know, the, the actual kind of uh, physical movements are very artificial, but that's really the point. Uh, you know, it's it's people reduced to the status of machines. They, you know, they're so dehumanized that they're indistinguishable from the very levers that they're pulling. So I think all of that sits rather uncomfortably and, and strangely with this kind of conservative, apparently conservative conclusion to the film that we've just discussed. And it is important to note, I mean, the Nazis did censor this movie. It was received in some quarters as having a communist subtext just by virtue of, you know, showing a class society, depicting a class society and showing uh, the horrendous exploitation of the workers beneath the surface. So all of that adds up to a very contradictory jumble of things, which I think is one of the things that makes this film uh, so fascinating. I should note that while Metropolis has a very high reputation, the ending was widely criticized at the time, uh, and it, it still is today. In Lottie Eisner, the great uh, German film scholar Lottie Eisner's book about Fritz Lang, she writes, even at the time when people were still close to the ecstatic mood of the preceding years, the film, particularly the ending, was not received uncritically. Lang himself now smiles about the notion of a mediator, a kind of sentimentality far removed from the harsh social criticism of his American films. It's only tangentially related, I suppose, but I think it's worth commenting a little bit more on the character of Metropolis itself and just kind of visually what it signifies, because... 
even though this film feels very much like a German film from the late 1920s, which is what it is, obviously the city shots are meant to recall Manhattan. And there's also a drawing of the Tower of Babel. I mean, the big building from which Frederson oversees everything, I think it's called the New Tower of Babel. But all of this gives the film a, a really interesting quality because it feels very German, but Lang is, I think, very much intending to give us something more universal. He's, he's trying to create a vision of um, hyper-capitalist modernity which is, you know, draws as much on American examples as, as European ones. And I think that's very important as well. Now, to complicate our interpretation of the film's ending uh, even more, I want to say two things. I mean, the first thing that's important to note is that uh, this film is based on a novel. And so Lang, you know, borrows the ending from the novel, uh, you know, which he was adapting. Uh, the other thing is that Lang, at one point at least, seems to have regretted the ending. He seems to have gone through many an evolution around the film, and his attitude seems to have fluctuated uh, about it quite a lot. At times, he appears to have regretted the conclusion, and then uh, perhaps even later in life, uh, he seems to have uh, sort of come back to uh, the idea that there was maybe something to it. Uh, and here I want to read a little bit from a book called uh, The Nature of the Beast by the scholar Patrick McGilligan. It was published in 2013. McGilligan writes, The very last scene in Metropolis would not be the stake burning or rotwang chasing Maria across the rooftops. After all the horror and ruination, the film offered a brief, surprisingly sweet coda, which indicated Fritz Lang's and Thea von Harbaugh's, that's the author of the novel, uh, romantic politics at a time when left and right wingers were shedding blood over the future of Germany. Lang labored over the endings, devoting the same excessive attention to the final moments that he gave to the opening shots. He often said in interviews that he'd agonized over this particular ending, which he always emphasized was principally von Harbaugh's contribution. Indeed, it does appear to have been von Harbaugh's. It was there in the novel, providing a symmetry in the storyline. It harks back to a moment earlier in the story where the Madonna Maria preaching to downtrodden workers, intones an identical moral. Years later, Lang claimed that he briefly considered and rejected a different, more Langian ending, with Freighter and Maria escaping together by spaceship to another unknown world in a kind of prelude to Die Frau im Mond, uh, another Lang film, I assume. Yet at the same time, Lang deferred to von Harbaugh on this key point, a concession that says something important about their relationship. In retrospect, the ending became symbolic for Lang of Metropolis's shortcomings. I have often said that I didn't like Metropolis. Lang was quoted in the prestigious French film magazine Cahiers du Cinéma in 1965. And that is because I cannot accept today the late motif of the message of the film. It is absurd to say that the heart is the mediator between the hands and the head. That is to say, of course, between employee and employer. The problem is social, not moral. And he declared in 1967, I was not so politically minded in those days as I am now. It is true that Lang's politics were changeable, and that amity between labor and capital was not always practicable or fashionable. The problem with the ending wasn't simply political, however, it was also emotional, and pointed up another directorial shortcoming. The American director Frank Capra, for example, could have carried off the kind of sentimentality, in Lotte Eisner's words, that the handshake ending warranted. Such a scene in which an alienated son made peace with his father called not just for sentimentality, but a humanism and open feeling that Lang as a director simply could not muster. For a long time, the director was adamant about Metropolis, almost childishly defending himself in the words of Pierre Rissiant, even while the film became a beloved classic to many. Late in life, as he softened, the director began to equivocate. Maybe the, quote, kitschy message was valid after all. Maybe a little dose of humanity was not such a bad thing for a film. The handshake ending was a sore subject brought up in interview after interview. The director at the end of his life was still mulling it over, making up his mind. 
I didn't think in those days a social question could be solved with something as simple as the line, the mediator between brain, capital, and hand, working class, must be the heart. Lang was quoted in 1976, the last year of his life. Yet today, when you speak with young people about what they miss in the computer-guided establishment, the answer is always the heart. So probably the scenarist, Mrs. Thea von Harbaugh, had foresight and therefore was right, and I was wrong. So Metropolis, even for its uh, director, is, uh, is a land of contrast right up until, right up to the end. we bring back Siegfried Krakauer. Inevitably, he talks about Metropolis and other Lang films in From Caligari to Hitler, and I will read at length uh, from his analysis of the ending. On the surface, it seems that Freder has converted his father. In reality, the industrialist has outwitted his son. The concession he makes amounts to a policy of appeasement that not only prevents the workers from winning their cause, but enables him to tighten his grip on them. His robot stratagem was a blunder inasmuch as it rested upon insufficient knowledge of the mentality of the masses. By yielding to Freighter, the industrialist achieves intimate contact with the workers, and thus is in a position to influence their mentality. He allows the heart to speak, a heart accessible to his insinuations. Um, obviously, Krakauer is indulging in quite a bit of extra-textual speculation here, but nevertheless, I defy you to challenge his interpretation of the implications of the ending. He goes on, In fact, Maria's demand that the heart mediate between hand and brain could well have been formulated by Goebbels. He, too, appealed to the heart, in the interest of totalitarian propaganda. At the Nuremberg Party Convention of 1934, he praised the art of propaganda as follows, May the shining flame of our enthusiasm never be extinguished. This flame alone gives light and warmth to the creative art of modern political propaganda. Rising from the depths of the people, this art must always descend back to it and find its power there. Power based on guns may be a good thing. It is, however, better and more gratifying to win the heart of the people and to keep it. Krakauer continues, The pictorial structure of the final scene confirms the analogy between the industrialist and Goebbels. If in this scene the heart really triumphed over tyrannical power, its triumph would dispose of the all-devouring decorative scheme that in the rest of Metropolis marks the industrialist's claim to omnipotence. Artist that he was, Lang could not possibly overlook the antagonism between the breakthrough of intrinsic human emotions and his ornamental patterns. Nevertheless, he maintains these patterns up to the very end. The workers advance in the form of a wedge-shaped, strictly symmetrical procession, which points towards the industrialist standing on the portal steps of the cathedral. The whole composition denotes that the industrialist acknowledges the heart for the purpose of manipulating it, that he does not give up his power, but will expand it over a realm not yet annexed, the realm of the collective soul. Freighter's rebellion results in the establishment of totalitarian authority, and he considers this result a victory. Rounding out the chapter, Krakauer writes, Freighter's pertinent reaction corroborates what has been said about the way in which the street films as well as the youth films anticipate the change of the system. In the case of Metropolis, Goebbels' own words bear out the conclusions drawn from this film. Lang relates that immediately after Hitler's rise to power, Goebbels sent for him. He told me that many years before, he and the Fuhrer had seen my picture Metropolis in a small town, and Hitler had said at that time that he wanted me to make the Nazi pictures. 
Well, since that famous and well-trodden anecdote has come up, why don't we just talk about it a little bit because it's interesting. Uh, Fritz Lang maintained until the end of his days, and this story seemed to keep getting embellished and embellished uh, as he got older and older, that shortly before the testament of Dr. Mabuza was to be released, uh, he was called to Joseph Goebbels' office. And Goebbels very sympathetically told him, unfortunately, we, we have to ban the film, but, uh, you know, we, we really love you. We think you're great. Uh, the Fuhrer loves Metropolis. We want you to be the head of the Nazi propaganda division. And by Lang's telling, he said, but, but my mother was born Jewish, to which Goebbels is alleged to have said, we decide who is Jewish. And then after that, Lang, uh, within 24 hours, was on the next train to Paris and had completely relocated, never to return again. I mean, that's the famous story, and I, I wish it was true. I would love to believe it. Yeah, so in McGilligan's book on, uh, on Fritz Lang, which we've uh, quoted from already, he details, you know, the different uh, versions of the story that appeared over the years. It absolutely was the case that Fritz Lang, like uh, Siegfried Krakauer, went to Paris and then later to the United States. But McGilligan kind of chronicles the various evolutions of the story. And I mean, it does seem like there is a lot of uh, just basic empirical evidence upon which, you know, a lot of the uh, critical details don't really hold up. So it's not clear if this meeting actually took place. Uh, he writes, for example, examination of Lang's passport shows no visas or exit stamps for the months of February and March 1933. Um, you know, it's not mentioned in uh, Goebbels' diaries as well from 1933. He writes, so what really happened? Lang didn't make up stories out of whole cloth. He exaggerated, edited, embellished. He could be struck by inspirations or, quote, dream something up. But he was at his best when taking a good first draft of a script or the highlights of a real life incident and using them as a foundation for his storytelling improvements. Most likely, the foredoomed encounter with Goebbels was actually an extended series of meetings, brief and casual and relatively congenial. Uh, probably the one climactic meeting between the two never did take place in exactly that way. Perhaps the meetings, whether they occurred three o'clock in the afternoon or late at night, carried on for some time after March or April 1933. As Lang refined his story in interviews, it annoyed German emigres all the more. 20 years after his death, it still inflames Germans in Germany, where Lang, for better or for worse, remains central to the cultural heritage. By most accounts, Fritz Lang was a rather unpleasant and disagreeable person in real life. And though his story about meeting Goebbels and fleeing the next day was uh, widely and sympathetically reported on in film-related press, you know, his own contemporaries, his own colleagues were apparently always very doubtful of it. We're always saying, oh, you know, he was a real self-interested bastard. He didn't have a political bone in his body. These aren't direct quotes, but this captures the spirit of, of the sorts of things they said. I'm willing to believe that there's a sort of ecstatic truth to what he was saying. I will also just say that going to the German Film Museum last week uh, underlined for me yet again what a difficult situation so many of those German film artists were in. You know, Fritz Lang went to Hollywood, and he had, in my opinion, a wonderful Hollywood career. He made so many masterpieces in Hollywood, uh, oftentimes working in genres. Uh, he did not make what you would call prestige films, though. He worked a lot in film noir. He worked a lot in uh, not B-movies, but let's say B-plus movies or A-minus movies, you know, not movies that were considered for Academy Awards. Nevertheless, he made masterpieces in those genres. But it wasn't exactly the sort of career that you would expect the director of Metropolis to have. Can you enlighten me as to whether he ever did anything else on this scale? Or was his Hollywood period sort of defined by minimalism entirely? Certainly he made Hollywood films with, you know, major stars. 
But as his Hollywood career went on, uh, his style becomes increasingly, I think, stripped down, just as his worldview becomes increasingly bleak. But, you know, earlier in this episode, I mentioned Emil Jannings, the great German film actor who won the first Oscar for Best Actor. You know, he was somebody who came over to Hollywood at the very end of the silent era and seemed poised to have this great career. And then sound came in and he had this very thick German accent. The studios didn't want him anymore. So he went back to Germany and became a huge star, continued to be a huge star, uh, became the biggest star in Nazi propaganda movies was consistently winning, you know, the 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 Medal of Honor or whatever. <laughs> the, the, the Nazi, the Nazi Oscar. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't want to let Emil Jannings off the hook here. I mean, after the war, like so many people, uh, he claimed to, uh, oh, you know, uh, I, di- I didn't mean any of that. I did all that stuff under duress, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, during the war, he was apparently throwing his whole heart and soul into his Otto von Bismarck biopic, and uh, he he wrote the he wrote the introduction to a book by the director of the Eternal Jew. So after the war, you know, he never worked again. Uh, so I don't I don't want to let him off the hook or even sympathize with him. But his career is yet another sad testament to the limited number of options available to so many of the people who flourished in the 1920s. Well, I want to add just to, uh, I don't know, problematize Fritz Lang a little bit more that, you know, the scale of this film, which had 25,000 extras and all of these just absolutely extraordinary special effects and is just really a, a tour de force of cinematography. Photography. I mean, all of these things came at a cost. Elsewhere in Patrick McGilligan's book, uh, we learned that uh, the extras were hurled into violent mob scenes, made to stand for hours in cold water, and uh, as Roger Ebert put it, handled more like props than human beings. The heroine was made, uh, this is Ebert again, the heroine was made to jump from high places, and when she was burned at a stake, Lang used real flames. Uh, the irony was that Lang's directorial style was not unlike the approach of the villain in his film. Now, I feel like uh, in this episode, probably more than in other films that we've talked about, uh, I think we've perhaps equivocated somewhat or, or seem to equivocate about as to where we actually stand, or perhaps I have. I think Will has been uh, fairly explicit as to his interpretation of the film. I have to say, uh, in the case of this movie, I see it as a terrain for interpretation more than as something that has a kind of stark thesis that can be uh, isolated or picked out. I mean, I find my own uh, interpretation of the film, at least on this particular viewing, uh, as being fairly close to Krakauer's. I mean, I don't read him as exactly saying that the film is, you know, secretly fascistic in its narrative or ambition. I don't think that's what his uh, thesis is really doing. That's not what it means to engage with, you know, the collective unconscious of a national cinema. I think he's instead saying, and, and I think this is how I feel about Metropolis too, that the film has contradictions that reflect a certain kind of limitation in what Krakauer at least would call the collective unconscious of, of Weimar, which may arguably give it, and I suppose here I'm sort of fusing my own feelings with what Krakauer says a bit, but, you know, which may arguably give it certain radical premises. I mean, just as I said before, you know, just by virtue of depicting the city and the exploitation that makes it possible, but which despite that renders it unable to look beyond any horizon other than a sort of authoritarian corporatism 
in which even uh, its depictions of rebellion ultimately find their terminus. So ultimately, I don't think I regard Fritz Lang's Metropolis as being either a misunderstood radical film or a secretly conservative one. I think just to equivocate a little further that Metropolis, uh, like Weimar Germany, is ultimately a land of contrast. While I do object to the end of the film and certain strains of thought that pervade it, the end of the film is just one part of the film. The images speak for themselves. The film's place in the context of Weimar-era German cinema speaks for itself. Its place in the collective unconscious speaks for itself. The movie is a lot more than just its end.